We've been going through the book of Revelation and I want to have you turn there again to chapter 2. We've looked at the first three churches already that Jesus is addressing. The first one was the church in Ephesus. If you recall, there was a church that was doing all the right things but had forsaken its first love. And then we had the church of Smyrna that was being persecuted and yet remained faithful. And then the church of Pergamum that had remained true to Christ's name but yet had allowed the teaching of Balaam to enter into the church. And today we're going to be looking at uh, Thyatira, which many refer to as the tolerant church. And I want to pray for us before we even begin that God will instruct us, that he will teach us, that he will give us a heart to follow him with everything that we have. And that we, in every way, as we go through these churches, will emulate those things that, that Jesus says are worthy. And those things that are not worthy, that we will shed, and that we will forsake, and that we will confess and repent of, that we might be the pure bride that Christ died for us to be. So let's pray and ask God to be with us. Father, we come to you this morning and we acknowledge your presence among us. And Holy Spirit, we say, would you lead us this morning? We are all inadequate. We are all uh, far from what we could be. But God, by your power and your work, Holy Spirit, we know that step by step, progressively, you're bringing growth and the Christ-likeness of your Son in us. And today, we know that's another part of that process. And we surrender ourselves right now and say, lead us, Holy Spirit, and let our hearts be yes to you even now. We surrender our time to you and and Father, may my words be your words and the way in which I speak be the way in which you would speak. That your flock and your people and those sons and daughters that you love so deeply might be edified and built up and encouraged in their walk with you today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. The Church of Thyatira, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your servants, service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only, on to, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and he will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father." I will also give him the morning star. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, we live in a time when the word tolerance has almost become a religion in and of itself. 
James Dobson has said that tolerance is a kind of watchword of those who reject the concept of right and wrong. It's a kind of desensitization to evil of all varieties. Everything has become acceptable to those who are tolerant. You know, there are certain things that we are to be tolerant of. Like, for instance, if your spouse has personality quirks or irritating habits, we're to be tolerant. Now, fortunately, I have a perfect wife, but she's stuck with a guy that sometimes has irritating habits and can be a little difficult to live with sometimes. And so it's, it's God's calling on her life to be tolerant and for, m- for myself as well to be tolerant. People who hold different spiritual views than we do on non-essential doctrines. For instance, uh, as we're talking about in the next number of weeks about the millennial reign of Christ, there are many different views on this. But these are things that the Christian body is to tolerate. We are to get along together over these non-essential issues. A person who's messy and disorganized or doesn't have the same views that you do politically, these are areas where we are called to be tolerant. In fact, the Bible says that this is called bearing with one another in love. That we are to bear with one another in love. Acknowledging differences and yet not fighting over these non-essential issues. But increasingly, we're being indoctrinated by our culture to be tolerant of false religions, tolerant of sexual immorality, of political corruption, of abortion, and the list goes on and on. Yet God himself is intolerant of these things that he refers to as sins. And though we may be right with God by and large, if we tolerate sin in the church or in our own lives, we can be sure that God in due time will address those issues just as he's addressing it today with the church of Thyatira. One of the things that you'll note as we go through this is that Thyatira, out of all the churches, I think was doing the most things right. They had the right heart. They really were motivated by the right things. In fact, as we're going to look at this, they're the only church that love is even mentioned in terms of their love for God and love for others. And they were advancing in this area and growing. And God blesses them for it. But there are always things in some of these churches, not all of them, but in most of them, that we need to be careful of. And in the church of Thyatira, their problem was that they were too tolerant. They had become tolerant of things that God himself was not tolerating and would not tolerate. And so as we look at this letter, we look at the church itself, Thyatira, and just a couple of background facts and information that might be helpful is it was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, the church that we looked at last week. And uh, it's famous for its manufacture of a purple dye called Turkey Red. That was what it was called, and in fact, it's still called Turkey Red to this day. It's also the hometown of Lydia. Do you remember Lydia in the book of Acts? Who came to Christ, she was, she was a, a follower of God, but she had not yet received the gospel or known Jesus Christ. And when Paul preached the word, she and her whole household were baptized. Quite likely, because that, that uh, reception of Christ was in Philippi, quite a distance away from Thyatira, is that, is that uh, Lydia had actually come to, to Philippi to uh, be an agent for one of the purple uh, woolen die casters in Thyatira. And so there she was working in Philippi, uh, advancing the, the business of her owner or whoever was she was working for. And so we find her coming to Christ in Philippi. And so she likely went back and had a tremendous influence in the launching of the church in Thyatira. Out of all the churches that we have in the seven churches, it's the smallest, it's the least significant. But interestingly, it's the longest letter. 
Like Pergamum, Thyatira was, was known for its trade guilds. Isn't it wonderful to have the background? I mean, it's like, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Will they be able to park that car? We're tolerant, though, because it's a non-essential doctrine. So, like Pergamum, uh, they had these trade guilds all throughout Thyatira. Oh, thank you, Jesus. They made it. Okay, he's coming in. Don't say anything. Okay, so they had trade guilds. And these trade guilds were a problem for the church. And the reason that they were a problem for the church is that these guilds were built around pagan idols and pagan deities. And so for these uh, uh, people who were a part of these guilds, you had to be a part of a guild if you wanted to work. You, you, it's kind of like our being uni unionized here in the United States. And if you weren't unionized, you had no job. And so the Christians, like the Church of Pergamum, were faced with the same problem as what to do. If we bow down to these idols in order to get a job, then we're forsaking Christ. But if we don't bow down, if we don't participate at some level in these love feasts that they have, and sometimes in the sexual uh, uh, perversions that were a part of this, this uh, worship, then we can't even eat. We can't live. What to do? And so the church was in a tremendous bind. And it was a very difficult thing. And until you kind of put yourself in their shoes, it's very easy for us to kind of judge them and say, well, gee, you know, just don't eat. It's just that simple. But have you ever watched your child starve to death? Have you ever seen your wife die in your arms because there was no food? But that's what these churches were facing for their faith in Christ. And so it was a great dilemma for the church. Now, that's the background on Thyatira. Now, Jesus himself says, I am writing to you, and he refers to himself in this passage in, in uh, the second part of verse 18, as the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And this really just refers to the penetrating power of the knowledge of Jesus Christ along with his swiftness and his judgment. And he says, I'm the one who knows your deeds. And again, we know that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. He knows everything about us. In fact, in a while, we'll talk about a passage that has really struck me of recent days in First Chronicles. It says, He even knows the motives behind our thoughts. And so Jesus knows everything about us. And He knows the church in Thyatira. He knows the good and the bad. And He's about to unfold, first, His commendations to the church for the things that they are doing well. And the first, if you're following along in your notes or if you want to just follow the text, he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith. The first thing he mentions is agape love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love of a laid down life. It's a person who has been so transformed by the power of God, so greatly affected by the love of Jesus Christ, that they themselves now respond in like kind. That's the only adequate response of a believer of someone who's been truly transformed by the power of God, there's only one thing for us to do. And that's to love in response. That's to love God and love others. Do you remember when uh, a, a, a leader in the Jewish uh, community came to Jesus and he said, and he really was kind of trying to trip him up, but he, but he said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And we know the answer. Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, soul and strength. And then he said, and in addition to this, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you fulfill these two commands, you have fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. And I'm thinking to myself, thank you, Jesus. That is the best news 
to not have to follow reams and books and reams and books of information about how to please God. But as believers in Christ, you know how very simple the Christian life is? It boils down to simply loving God and loving others. I mean, I find that tremendously liberating. I don't have to worry about all the law of the Old Testament. I don't have to worry about following all the regulations. I don't even have to worry about whether I'm doing something right or wrong. I know that if I'm acting in love toward God and if I'm acting in love toward my brother or sister, that I am fulfilling every purpose that God has for my life. That is a great freedom for a New Testament believer. And it's the primary evidence of someone who's truly come to know Jesus Christ. In fact, John, the same author, in his epistle in 1 John, says that whoever does not love has not even yet known God. This was the problem with the church in Ephesus, is that they had learned how to do all the right things, but there was no love in the church. There was no love for God, and there was a lack of love for one another. And Jesus rebuked that church for their lack of love. And if you don't get anything else out of this entire sermon, can I encourage you in one thing? Is let your love abound more and more in Christ. Let it abound for Him and let it abound for others. It is the primary evidence of someone who's truly walking with the Lord. It should just be evident to anyone that's around you that love is a part of your life. It's something that God creates in us. It's something that God does. You can ask for it. If you ask for it, I guarantee you that God is going to be honored by that and He will give you a powerful love for Him and an overwhelming love for others. And this church, Thyatira, excelled in agape love. Jesus goes on and says, not only are you excelling in love, but also in faith. And faith is not belief without proof, but it's trust without reservation. It's a response to God's initiative. It's nothing that you have to drum up. It's nothing that you have to create. It's not an emotion. Faith is strictly and simply a response to what God has said. So God speaks in His Word and you say, I believe you. God says to live this certain way and you say, by your grace I will. It's just our saying to God, you are absolutely right about everything. And we completely submit ourselves to you and whatever you want, we will do. That's faith. And I am so encouraged in both of these counts because God has allowed our fellowship to excel in these two areas. There is a great amount of love in this fellowship. And my only encouragement to you is abound still more. Excel even more in loving one another and loving God. And of all the fellowships I've ever pastored and I've never been in a church that was so willing to walk by faith, you, you guys have really done some crazy things as we followed God. I've not had in the whole time I've been here anybody say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Bob. We're not doing that. We don't have any money for that. And I've never had any of you say, that can't be God's will because we just don't have, we don't have enough people to do this or that or the other thing. But every time God has called us to move forward and advance, all of you have just said, I don't know how we're going to do it and I've joined you in that same saying. It's like, we don't know what to do, Lord. You're telling us to do something. We don't have the resources. We don't have the ability. We don't have the power. And yet when we follow Him, what happens? Every single time, God blesses us. And you are a fellowship that has learned how to walk by faith 
And you're an inspiration to me and to others in this fellowship and to others outside this fellowship. And so God commends them through Jesus Christ for their faith. The Bible speaks clearly on this issue. He says, without faith, without a willingness to trust God, without a willingness to step out and take his word for truth and rely on his promises, the the writer in Hebrews says that it's impossible to please God because the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so God is waiting. He's looking for men and women just like us to step out and to trust him, not to create our own agenda and to, and to get God to bless it and say, well, I'm stepping out, God. I hope you're with me. No. We wait on him in prayer. And when he tells us what to do, then we advance based on his word. And then we rely on him completely by faith. And the Bible says that he will support those who earnestly seek him and walk by faith and that he will be pleased with that kind of a lifestyle. And the church of Thyatira was just such a church. Now, in addition to faith and love, he notes their service. This word service is where we derive our word deacon from. It means someone who eagerly and willingly waits on others and most notably waits on tables. Somebody that's willing to do whatever it takes. And really, service is an overflow of love. When you are deeply in love with Jesus Christ and you deeply love the body of Jesus Christ and you even love unbelievers because you recognize in them the image of Jesus Christ, though marred it may be, the natural flow from that is service. It's a giving of yourself away to others. It doesn't happen very much in in this fellowship and I thank God for that. But at times it can be possible for someone to be impacted by the love of Christ and never, never serve anyone else. And just soak and soak and absorb and absorb and become unhealthy and actually sick from overeating, from overindulgence in the love of God without being able to give it away. And the church of Thyatira had avoided that problem. And I see so many, as I come in during the week and stop in for various things and work and I come in even at night and on Friday I came in here to, to pray with a, a few brothers and for the fellowship and for God's direction for the church and for the lost in this community and lo and behold there was a family here cleaning the church and I just see people serving in Sunday school and in a whole variety of capacities and not just inside the church but I see men and women many of you outside the church serving your neighbors and your friends and serving one another And I look at that and I say, that is a fruit of agape love. That is another evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. And the church of Thyatira had this kind of a heart. Now, the Bible makes it clear that if we are truly to live the Christ-like life, well, we have to be following the example of Jesus. And what did Jesus himself say about service? He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God... How many of you want to be, you know, kind of like barely squeaking in the kingdom's doors? Nobody. I'm assuming that many of you, if not all of you, would like to be great, not in a prideful way, but you want to be great in the kingdom in the sense that you are having a great impact, that you are being used by the Lord, that that God will honor your service and he will remember and look at what you've done and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, if that's what you want, then the Bible says, then you must become the least in this life. Greatness is reserved in the kingdom of God for those who are willing to become the least in this life, who are willing to serve the least 
of these. Jesus said of himself, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. None of us will ever be able to equal the service of Jesus Christ, but we can emulate it and we can aim at it. And it has to flow from love. I have found in my own life that when I put on my agenda and I've got my little checklist of service, but it's not motivated by love, that I just am not able to maintain a heart of service without becoming irritated or frustrated or kind of like, hey, how come you're not serving me back? You know, How come you're not appreciating what I'm doing? How come you're not patting my back? How come you haven't said anything about all these things I've been doing for you or for this group of people? That's what happens to me when my service isn't flowing out of an overflowing agape love for God and for others. But I find when I'm motivated by love that I can serve and not receive any accolades or pat on the back or acknowledgement at all and still be full of joy. And so Jesus commends this church for being a church of service. They also lived a life of perseverance, we're told in this passage. And we know that perseverance is such an important thing, especially when you're persecuted. Now, we don't face much persecution in our culture, but we still have to persevere to maintain those things and move forward in our walk with God. And it does take discipline. It does take perseverance to spend time with God every day in the Word and to be fellowshipping with Him and to pray. It's hard work to pray. That's why very few churches have very much prayer going on. And that's probably why many of us struggle with prayer, is that it's hard work. But God calls us to persevere, and and this church in Thyatira was a church that would persevere and did persevere. We're told in Hebrews that we're to cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and we're to run the race marked out for us with perseverance. And you know, all of our race... The destination is the very same thing. We are racing and running to win in the kingdom of God. We are running God's race. Now, we do it differently. Some of us are running in different events. Some of us are running with different types of equipment. But the net result is that we all, we're all running for the same goal, and that's to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ and to bring as many people with us as we can into the kingdom of God through the sharing of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And God says through Jesus that he is, he's pleased with the church of Thyatira for their perseverance in their devotion and love for Jesus Christ and his body. And then he finishes off by saying that, and not only these things, but that you are now doing more than you did at first. They lived a life of progressive growth. I know a lot of Christians who have come to Christ and are so excited and zealous about Jesus Christ and they are touched by God and something powerful and transforming has clearly happened in their life. But years pass and 15 years and 20 years and 25 years and all of a sudden you talk to them and they're not doing more than they did at first. In fact, they're doing less than they did at first and they're kind of living off the fumes of their experiences 20 years ago. They had a Jesus movement uh, celebration, a, a, a kind of a class reunion uh, a few months ago in California. And one of the primary emphasis that was given in the, in the teaching of the word was, you know, are you really doing what you did at first? Because so many of us can lag and become lethargic and miss what we were doing at first. But the Bible says, even as he said to the church in Ephesus, 
is go back to the things you were doing at first. And in this case, the church of Thyatira was not diminishing in their love or their devotion for God, but they were increasing and growing. Now, the Bible says that we are to move on to full maturity in Jesus Christ. If I had my sons and, and I looked at them and two years passed and three years passed and they not only were not any get it, getting any bigger, but they were getting smaller and then they had to wear diapers again and I'd start to get really worried if they started shrinking. I would become very concerned. I'd be right to Dr. Paul and I'd say, Dr. Paul, my son is shrinking. He's getting smaller. He's looking younger and younger every day. Less mature. A few weeks ago he could talk and write. Now he can't even talk. And Dr. Paul would look at him and say, something's terribly wrong. The Bible says that as believers we shouldn't be becoming less mature, but we should be moving on to maturity in Jesus Christ. Paul, when he was writing Timothy, said, Timothy, be diligent in these matters concerning the kingdom of God so that your progress would be evident to everyone. When I look around this fellowship, I see men and women that I can see visible change in your life. I can see transformation taking place. I can see value changes and adjustments taking place in your life. I can see your priorities changing. I can see your love for God and for others increasing. And I look at that and I say, that is a clear evidence of the power and work of the Holy Spirit. I'm encouraging you, excel still more. Abound in growth. The way you grow in the kingdom of God is you spend time with God. That's as, that's as simple as it gets. It's that simple. I could give you a, a list of 50 things you can do, but let me sum it up in one thing. is just love Jesus and love others. Fall more in love with Him and fall more in love with His body and serve Him. Do His will. Just be available to Him. He wants to just pour out a great blessing on you. He wants to guide you. He wants to use you right where you are in your workplace or in your home life or with your neighbors. He's just waiting for a man or a woman to say, Here am I. I'm available for whatever you want. And I will walk by faith. I will do whatever you call me to do. And when God finds a man or a woman like that, it's a treasure. It's a rarity, even, unfortunately, in the church of God. But when he finds a man or woman like that, as Moody once said, there's no limit to what God can do. And so the church of Thyatira were evidencing diligence and making visible progress in their walk with God. So they had love, of course, nothing's greater than love. They had faith, which is basic for a continuing trustful reliance on God. They had service, which the Bible says the master expects to find a servant doing when he returns. And they had perseverance, which is steady progress that's more important than bright beginnings. And they had growth, which is in contrast to the church in Ephesus, who started out so well and yet began to diminish. The church in Thyatira started out and began to grow and get stronger and stronger in their walk with Jesus Christ. And my encouragement to you as a body of Jesus and the one that he loves so deeply is that you emulate Thyatira in these five areas. Be a man or a woman who's just in love with him, who serves him and others, who has faith in him, who perseveres, and who, when people look at you, they can say, wow, you know, I can just see you growing. It's obvious. You're changing right in front of our very eyes. That's the life of a true believer. Now, all the news wasn't good for Thyatira. Jesus had a complaint against the church. 
And we find that beginning in verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, I had this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, in Thyatira, there was evidently a woman that Jesus refers to as Jezebel. We are fairly certain that this is not actually the woman's name. Oftentimes in scripture, a, a person will be named according to their characteristic. And so in this case, Jesus is referring to this woman Jezebel. Now, if you know and remember your Old Testament uh, stories, Jezebel was the most wicked woman in the whole Bible. I mean, there was no woman who was more wicked than Jezebel in the Bible. And she was married to King Ahab, who was the king of Israel after the divided monarchy in Israel. And he was a wicked king, but he wasn't nearly as wicked as his wife. His wife was truly the epitome of evil. And so, in a parabolic sort of fashion, Jesus selects this name and said, you have a woman in your church who's just like Jezebel. And she calls herself a prophetess. Nobody said that you're a prophet. She herself has made herself a self-proclaimed prophet and a prophetess. And in this case, Jezebel in the Old Testament was noted for two things. Here we go again. He's going to do it. He's going to make it out. We're hoping he doesn't come through the back door. There are two things that, uh, that she did. She participated in idolatry and sinful sexual practices. And she encouraged other people to join her in that practice. Now, there are three possibilities in terms of the identity of this woman. Boy, you know, when, you have, when, when the noise is over, it's so nice and peaceful. Okay, so there are three possibilities as to the identity of this woman. One is that she might have been the pastor's wife. <laughs> Now, the reason that people suggest this is that how could a woman lead the church in such an idolatrous, sinful direction without having some influence or a power base to work from? And so some people think that the, this woman may actually have been the pastor's wife also because Ahab in the Old Testament story was kind of a weakling, wimpy, mealy-mouthed leader. And he let his wife run all over him. Let his wife really guide from the front, not just from behind. She wasn't a backseat uh, leader in, in Israel, but she was in the driver's seat and he was kind of saying, yes, dear, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear, whatever you want. I don't want to... He didn't want to incur her wrath. He was afraid of her. And so was everyone else. Even Elijah was afraid of her, the prophet of God. And so here was Ahab. Oh my gosh, just don't make my wife upset. You know, it's just like, everybody calm her down. Don't anybody ruffle anything because I have to go to bed with her tonight and I don't want to live with a wild woman and she will get out of control and angry with me. And so Ahab was afraid and it's possible that in the church of Thyatira that there may have been a pastor or a bishop who was godly and yet failed to have the inner strength to follow God with his whole heart and allowed his wife possibly to begin to dictate from behind the direction of the church. And I've never been in a church like this, but I do know churches like this where the wife from behind is leading and guiding and cajoling and the pastor, it's just a terribly uncomfortable situation and everybody knows if you want to see anything get done, you've got to get to the wife first. You've got to get her. The husband, he'll follow, but you've got to get the wife. But if you only get the pastor, you're, you're not, it's not going to happen. You have to get the wife because the wife is leading the family and making life uncomfortable for the whole fellowship. If she's not happy, nobody's happy. And so that's possible that that was the case in this church of Thyatira. The other possibility is that she might have been a cultic priestess who was converted, uh, Sambathe, who was uh, known at that time and she was 
came to faith evidently, but may have not really been converted because obviously she was misleading the church. On the other hand, it, it very simply could be just a, a woman who rose to prominence in the church, who became influential. And have you ever been around someone who it's like they have a hotline to God and nobody else does? Have you ever been around somebody like that? They're, they're, well, the Lord told me to do this, and the Lord told you, told me to tell you that you should be doing this and that and the other thing. And, and when I was in prayer, God told me to do this, and it's for you to do this and that and the other thing. And by the way, God spoke to me about something in your life, and you know, and all of a sudden, half the church is like, get a, give me a break, you know. And the prophecies don't come true, and, and, but they say, well, not everybody's prophecies come true. I'm about 75%. Well, the Bible says if you're not 100%, we stone you. But nonetheless, they keep prophesying, and a few people find a person like this and they all of a sudden say, oh, a prophet of God. And they follow them around and whatever this person says goes and it's like they have the word of God. They know what God wants me to do. And this person is no longer responsible for themselves because they're being told by this other person what God wants for their life. And so they're, they're, they're just completely dependent and following them around and saying what every, oh, so-and-so said this. Oh, so -and she said this and she said that. And well, of course I'm going to follow her. She's a prophetess. She speaks for God. Don't you see the power and the charisma in her? I want to be just like her. And then that person begins to emulate and do the same thing and say, well, God told me to do this and told me to do that. And they begin to stretch the truth and be deceptive with others and even with themselves. And that was what was happening with this woman, Jezebel. And the church, in the most powerful word, I think, in this whole passage, Jesus says, you tolerate Jezebel. You put up with her. You leave her in peace or you let her alone. And the result was is that she misled the people into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. The very same thing that happened in Pergamos. And I won't go over those issues again because I addressed those the last time that I spoke on, uh, on the churches. But sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Now God had a very clear response in Jesus Christ to this kind of wickedness. Look at what it says. It says, By her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to eating food sacrificed to idols. And listen now, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. You know, I find it interesting, the patience and endurance of Jesus Christ. If I had been Jesus, and I saw this woman in Jezebel, uh, Jezebel you know, manipulating and, and hurting the church a bolt of lightning would have cracked from heaven and she would have been toast. That would have been the end of Jezebel. But not Jesus Christ. He patiently waits. The word time, it says he gave her time, it means a period of time. He didn't just give her, you know, a date and an hour, but he gave her time, a period of time to repent. But the Bible says that she was unwilling. And, you know, one of the things that probably is the most grievous thing to me as a pastor is to watch a man or a woman who knows Christ fail to repent, even though God gives them a period of time. And I watch as they continue on in sin and continue on in rebelling against God, and even though it may be secret and very few people know about it, the Lord knows, and I, and I fear for that person because I realize what God has for that person, life and joy and abundance and peace, and they're trading what God wants to give for, uh, to them for the, the cheap thrills that, that Satan has for them that last only a moment and then come with a bitter sting at the end. And unfortunately, Jezebel, even though God expressed his patience and his kindness, not wanting anyone to perish, including Jezebel, in spite of that, she was unwilling. And some of you know friends and family members who, though you have encouraged them and warned them and 
done everything you can to share the gospel with them, they are unwilling. And all we can do is what Jesus did, and that's to wait. And in God's time, let Him hopefully bring them about to a place where they recognize that God's ways are for their benefit and not for their harm. Now, Jesus makes it clear that although He's given her time to repent and she was unwilling, He's going to do something about it. He will judge. In verse 22, He says, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. It's interesting that the bed that was a bed of pleasure, a bed of adultery, a bed of fornication, a bed of sexual immorality has now become a bed of suffering. I was talking with, uh, with Dr. Paul from our church and I asked him for some statistics on sexually transmitted diseases. He told me that the most recent figures state that 20 million people in the United States annually report new cases of STDs, of sexually transmitted diseases. Not all of these end up in death, but many of them do. And of course we know uh, AIDS and HIV are some of the most ser- more serious, but there's chlamydia and genital warts and gonorrhea and herpes and hepatitis and syphilis and the list goes on. It's like more and more disease is coming. And the more progressive we become, the more as a culture we tolerate sin, the more of these diseases seem to be surfacing and the less effective our, our antibiotics are against these diseases. And, you know, Romans says that God will give people over to their sexual perversions. He will allow it to happen. And that they, in their own bodies, will bear the penalty. Now, does that mean that God created AIDS? I don't believe so. But is AIDS a direct result of of sexual immorality? Of course it is. There are people that get it from illegal use of drugs and things, but primarily it's through sexual immorality. Is it God's plan for men and women to die from AIDS or for, for men and women to have all kinds of, uh, of uh, sexual problems and they become married to a, a person who may or may not have sexual problems and to transfer that to your spouse? And Of course not. It's the natural result, it's a consequence that God has allowed to take place. And even back in these times in Thyatira, there was sexually transmitted diseases. And I believe, according to this text, that the, that the bed of suffering that he's referring to is, is sexual disease. And there were people that went insane through syphilis and lost their minds and died very horrible, gruesome deaths. But this certainly is not God's plan for his church. And yet this woman, Jezebel, was leading the church into sexual immorality. And so he punished her on a bed of suffering. It says that not only will he make her suffer, but he will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. And her offspring will be struck dead. This is just gruesome. This is not God's plan for your life. This is not God's plan for anyone's life. But, as Romans says, if we persevere and are committed to walking in rebellion against God, we will bear in our bodies the suffering that's connected with all these perversions and these things that are dishonoring to God. Now, why? Well, the reason is is that God wants the churches to know as it says here in this passage, that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. God is a patient God. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he is a God who punishes. Some will be punished in this lifetime. Some will be punished in the life to come. Either way, it's going to be uh, something that, that no man or woman would ever want if they understood or could comprehend the fullness of what is, is awaiting them if they fail to follow Christ. Now, I have to finish here 
But there are a few things that I want to make application to in our own lives. Because, you know, most of us aren't in trade guilds that make us have, uh, you know, go bow down to idols. And most of us aren't in unions that make us uh, go to love feasts and commit sexual immorality in order to stay a part of the group. But there are things that the church does tolerate today, things that the church puts up with and closes a blind eye to that I believe dishonors God and that uh, is equally damaging and equally sinful. I think one of them is sexual sin. I think the church has overlooked uh, adultery in the church. I think it overlooks fornication. I think it overlooks homosexuality. I was talking with, um, with someone not, not so long ago uh, who told me that in the church, their spouse, who they are not divorced from, comes to church with the new girlfriend, the same church that this woman attends, has his arm around this new girlfriend. The whole church knows that he is not divorced and no one says a word. That is spiritual tolerance that's sinful. The Bible says that we should have no impurity in the church, that there should be no sexual immorality. And I am not a sin sniffer. I am not interested in being the sex police anywhere. I don't like that. But if it becomes known to me that there is adultery going on in the church, I am obligated before God to address that, and I will do so, and I have. Because God desires a pure church. If there are people who are fornicating in the church, I am obligated before God. Now, is that because God wants me going around, you know, investigating people's private lives? Absolutely not. But I am his under-shepherd, and as, as his under-shepherd, I have an obligation to lift you to the, to the power and the, the dimensions of Jesus Christ where he wants you to live in holiness and purity. And so it's not to catch anyone doing something wrong, but it's to help you. It's to reconcile you with Jesus Christ. It's to help you become all that Christ has called you to be. Another thing that the church allows and tolerates is ethical sin. Where men, and, often, and sometimes women, but primarily men, in their business practices outside the church are deceitful. Where they steal or practice their business illegally, do unlawful things to other people and are unfaithful and unreliable and fail to pay their debts. These things are dishonoring to God. These things shouldn't be tolerated. And we need, as men especially, but also as a body of Christ, to be lifting each other to a higher standard so that there is no sin in the church, so that when the people outside the church point to this fellowship, they can't point to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and say, you know, I believe in Jesus, but that person really did a bad deal on me. And I can't come to that church because of that person's sin against me. That's tolerance that God doesn't accept. Spiritual sins. I was um, sent in the mail by a church here locally an invitation to have a labyrinth party. Anybody know what a labyrinth is? There's a church not too far down here. It's a big circle of rocks and you see these people wandering around in circles. Anybody see that right in Kapaa here? It's not this church that's doing it. It's another church. This is absolute cultic practice. There is no question. This is not biblical. And it's the church's effort after they have forsaken and rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ they now, void of anything to offer anyone, are, are seeking out cultic practices and inviting those practices into the church and teaching the believers that they can walk around in circles in this endless path and come very finally to the center where there's this petal, this rose of, of absolute serenity. And you can stand in there in this absolute place of serenity and meet God. And I'm thinking, oh, that's cultic. There's no question, but these things are unacceptable. And God will not tolerate them, but the church now is tolerating that practice. Not just that, but many other ungodly 
New Age teachings, many other Eastern mysticism teachings are penetrating in the church. Why? Because the church, when it is void of the gospel of Jesus Christ, has nothing to offer an unbeliever and even nothing to offer a believer. So they're, they relegate themselves to going and finding new types of things to, to interest the people to stay in church. Now, there are other things. Uh, oh, I've got too many things. I don't have time. Multiculturalism. Returning to false idols. The Hawaiian heritage worships false idols. We have to be very careful about that, not just the Hawaiians, but Indians and whatever culture or background you have where you want to return to the gods of that, of that culture, that is a very dangerous thing to do because the Bible calls that idolatry. When we return to that culture so often, that culture itself is enshrouded and completely wrapped up in the worship of gods. Everything having to do with that culture and the practices and the cultural dances and many things are associated with idolatry. And we need to be so careful that we are not tolerating in the church what God finds intolerable. Now, I'm going to have to finish. It's so important that we are pure before God and that we are willing to do whatever it takes. I am willing as a pastor to confront sin in the church. I am willing to do church discipline. Many churches don't. The Bible says that the church should have church discipline, that we among ourselves are to judge ourselves. We're not to judge the outside unbeliever, but we are to judge one another. Not critically, but for the purpose of lifting one another to the, to the purposes and the love of Christ. And I want to tell you right now from the pulpit that if there ever comes a day when I sin ethically or morally or sexually, I expect fully for you to come and address it with me. And I will step down from the ministry. I believe that if a man uh, sexually falls in, in areas of perversion or adultery and that person is a pastor, I think that person is forever disqualified from standing in the pulpit and preaching the word of God again. I can do other things. I can do other types of support ministry, but I think I've disqualified myself from the public ministry in terms of preaching and teaching the Word of God. And I'm fully expecting that there will be men in this church who I have been teaching and training how to do church discipline in a loving and a, and a reconciliatory way that you will come to me and you will say, Bob, I'm so sorry, but we need to talk and you need to step down. I hope that day never comes. I'm aiming at Christ. I'm, I'm not aiming at anything else. I'm running to win and to finish the race. And I'm, I'm aiming to bring as many with me as I can and I'm aiming to lift all of you up to follow Christ with a passion and power that God can give us through His Spirit. But if that day ever comes, I'm fully expecting that you will come and you will take care of business with me and you will do it lovingly as I have done it with you. But nonetheless, that you will do and take care of what needs to be done. And so this was the fault of the church. They had shrunk away from the calling of God to remain pure. They had begun to tolerate what God found intolerable. And God says he will judge that. And my encouragement to you is let's not even go there. Let's not even be in that direction. Let's not even come close. Let's be so close embracing and holding on to Christ that there's not even an issue of that kind of toleration of sin in our lives because we're so in love with Jesus and all we want to do is please him. All we want to do is do his will. All we want to do is honor him and devote ourselves to him. And that's what Jesus is seeking. Men and women who will follow him with a whole heart. And he says that the one who overcomes and does his will to the end, he's going to be given authority over the nations. Do you know that there's going to come a time, not even now, 
The Bible says that even now we will have authority and do have authority. Jesus has given it through His Son that you would have authority to go in His name and preach the gospel. Not long from now, in the millennial reign of Christ, you will be given authority over the nations. And then when that world is wrapped up and the, and the new heaven and the new earth come down from heaven, you will reign and rule with Christ in authority. That is what is awaiting you. And the bright and morning star that Jesus promises is Jesus himself. He wants to give himself to you. And he wants you to give himself, yourself, to him as a pure bride, undefiled, totally in love with him, totally walking by faith, completely willing to serve others, walking in perseverance, and then growing in such a way that your progress is evident to everyone around you. That's the lesson of the church of Thyatira. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what you've done. Thank you for this church, God, that was doing so many things right. And God, give us a heart to follow in their steps. And Jesus, we give ourselves afresh to you and say, Father, may we not be men and women who tolerate what you find intolerable. God, may you allow the the spotlight of your spirit to shine in the deepest parts of our heart that we might see and be made aware of anything that you find displeasing, that we might renounce it and walk away from it, God, and repent of it. Not be unwilling, but be willing to do whatever you've called us to do. God, we love you. Thank you for what you're doing in this fellowship. We give you honor and glory and praise. We know it's your hand. And Father, we give you thanks. And we boast in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen.